Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Storytime with Stephanie. Today I read chapters 9 through 11 of Volume 1, Book 2 of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. I hope you can grab some tea, cozy up, and enjoy. Chapter 9. New Troubles When the hour came for him to take his departure from the galleys, when Jean Valjean heard in his ear the strange words, Thou art free, the moment seemed improbable and unprecedented. A ray of vivid light, a ray of the true light of the living, suddenly penetrated within him. But it was not long before this ray paled. Jean Valjean had been dazzled by the idea of liberty. He had believed in a new life. He very speedily perceived what sort of liberty it is to which a yellow passport is provided. And this was encompassed with much bitterness. He had calculated that his earnings during his sojourn in the galleys ought to amount to 171 francs. It is but just to add that he had forgotten to include in his calculations the forced repose of Sundays and festival days during 19 years, which entailed a diminution of about 80 francs. At all events, his hoard had been reduced by various local levies to the sum of 109 francs, 15 sous, which had been counted out to him on his departure. He had understood nothing of this and had thought himself wronged. Let us say the word, robbed. On the day following his liberation, he saw at grass in front of an orange flower distillery some men engaged in loading bales. He offered his services. Business was pressing. They were accepted. He set to work. He was intelligent, robust, adroit. He did his best. The master seemed pleased. While he was at work, a gendarme passed, observed him, and demanded his papers. It was necessary to show him the yellow passport. That done, Jean Valjean resumed his labor. A little while before he had questioned one of the workmen as to the amount which they had earned each day at this occupation, he had been told thirty sous. When evening arrived, as he was forced to set out again on the following day, he presented himself to the owner of the distillery and requested to be paid. The owner did not utter a word, but handed him fifteen sous. He objected. He was told, that is enough for thee. He persisted. The master looked him straight between the eyes and said to him, Beware of the prison. There again he considered that he had been robbed. Society, the state, by diminishing his hoard, had robbed him wholesale. Now it was the individual who was robbing him at retail. Liberation is not deliverance. One gets free from the galleys, but not from the sentence. That is what happened to him at Grasse. We have seen in what matter he was received at D. Chapter 10. The Man Aroused As the cathedral clock struck two in the morning, Jean Valjean awoke. What awoke him was that his bed was too good. It was nearly twenty years since he had slept in a bed, and although he had not undressed, the sensation was too novel not to disturb his slumbers. He had slept more than four hours. His fatigue had passed away. He was accustomed not to devote many hours to repose. He opened his eyes and stared into the gloom which surrounded him. Then he closed them again with the intention of going to sleep once more. When many varied sensations have agitated the day, when various matters preoccupy the mind, one falls asleep once, but not a second time. Sleep comes more easily than it returns. This is what happened to Jean Valjean. He could not get to sleep again, and he fell to thinking. He was at one of those moments when the thoughts which one has in one's mind are troubled. There was a sort of dark confusion in his brain. His memories of the olden time and of the immediate present floated there, pell-mell, and mingled confusedly, losing their proper forms, becoming disproportionately large, then suddenly disappearing as in a muddy and perturbed pool. Many thoughts occurred to him, but there was one which kept constantly presenting itself afresh and which drove all others away. 
We will mention this thought at once. He had observed the six sets of silver forks and spoons on the ladle which Madame Magloire had placed on the table. Those six sets of silver haunted him. They were there, a few paces distant. Just as he was traversing the adjoining room to reach the one in which he then was, the old servant woman had been in the act of placing them in a little cupboard near the head of the bed. He had taken careful note of this cupboard. On the right, as you entered from the dining room, they were solid, and old silver. From the ladle, one could get at least two hundred francs, double what he had earned in nineteen years. It is true that he would have earned more if the administration had not robbed him. His mind wavered for a whole hour in fluctuations with which there was certainly mingled some struggle. Three o'clock struck. He opened his eyes again, drew himself up abruptly into a sitting posture, stretched out his arm and felt of his knapsack, which he had thrown down in a corner of the alcove. Then he hung his legs over the edge of the bed and placed his feet on the floor, and thus found himself, almost without knowing it, seated on his bed. He remained for a time thoughtfully in this attitude, which would have been suggestive of something sinister for anyone who had seen him thus in the dark, the only person awake in that house where all were sleeping. All of a sudden, he stooped down, removed his shoes, and placed them softly on the mat beside the bed. Then he resumed his thoughtful attitude, and became motionless once more. Throughout this hideous meditation, the thoughts which we have above indicated moved incessantly through his brain, entered, withdrew, re-entered, and in a manner oppressed him, and then he thought also, without knowing why, with the mechanical persistence of reverie of a convict named Brevet, whom he had known in the galleys and whose trousers had been upheld by a single suspender of knitted cotton. The checkered pattern of that suspender recurred incessantly to his mind. He remained in this situation, and would have so remained indefinitely, even until daybreak, had not the clock struck one, the half or quarter hour. It seemed to him that that stroke said to him, Come on. He rose to his feet, hesitated still another moment, and listened. All was quiet in the house. Then he walked straight ahead, with short steps to the window, of which he caught a glimpse. The night was not very dark. There was a full moon, across which coursed large clouds driven by the wind. This created outdoors alternate shadow and gleams of light, eclipses, then bright openings of the clouds, and indoors a sort of twilight. This twilight, sufficient to enable a person to see his way, intermittent on account of the clouds, resembled the sort of livid light which falls through an air hole in a cellar, before which the passers-by come and go. On arriving at the window, Jean Valjean examined it. It had no grating. It opened in the garden, and was fastened, according to the fashion of the country, only by a small pin. He opened it, but as a rush of cold and piercing air penetrated the room abruptly, he closed it again immediately. He scrutinized the garden with that attentive gaze which studies rather than looks. The garden was enclosed by a tolerably low white wall, easy to climb. Far away, at the extremity, he perceived tops of trees, spaced at regular intervals, which indicated that the wall separated the garden from an avenue or lane planted with trees. Having taken this survey, he executed a movement like that of a man who has made up his mind, strode to his alcove, grasped his knapsack, opened it, fumbled in it, pulled out of it something which he placed on the bed, put his shoes into one of his pockets, shut the whole thing up again, threw the knapsack on his shoulders, put on his cap, drew the visor down over his eyes, felt for his cudgel, went and placed it in the angle of the window, then returned to the bed and resolutely seized the object which he had deposited there. It resembled a short bar of iron, pointed like a pike at one end. It would have been difficult to distinguish in that darkness for what employment that bit of iron could have been designed. Perhaps it was a lever. Possibly it was a club. In the daytime, it would have been possible to recognize it as nothing more than a miner's candlestick. Convicts were, at that period, sometimes employed in quarrying stone from the lofty hills which environ Toulon, and it was not rare for them to have miner's tools at their command. These miners' candlesticks are of massive iron, terminated at the lower extremity by a point, by means of which they are stuck into the rock. He took the candlestick in his right hand. Holding his breath and trying to deaden the sound of his tread, he directed his steps to the door of the adjoining room, occupied by the bishop, as we already know. On arriving at this door, he found it ajar. The bishop had not closed it. Chapter 11. What He Does 
Jean Valjean listened. Not a sound. He gave the door a push. He pushed it gently with the tip of his finger, lightly with the furtive and uneasy gentleness of a cat which is desirous of entering. The door yielded to this pressure and made an imperceptible and silent movement which enlarged the opening a little. He waited a moment, then gave the door a second and a bolder push. It continued to yield in silence. The opening was now large enough to allow him to pass. But near the door there stood a little table which formed an embarrassing angle with it and barred the entrance. Jean Valjean recognized the difficulty. It was necessary, at any cost, to enlarge the aperture still further. He decided on his course of action and gave the door a third push, more energetic than the two preceding. This time a badly oiled hinge suddenly emitted amid the silence a hoarse and prolonged cry. Jean Valjean shuddered. The noise of the hinge rang in his ears with something of the piercing and formidable sound of the trump of the Day of Judgment. In the fantastic exaggerations of the first moment, he almost imagined that that hinge had just become animated and had suddenly assumed a terrible life, and that it was barking like a dog to arouse everyone and warn and to wake those who were asleep. He halted, shuddering, bewildered, and fell back from the tips of his toes upon his heels. He heard the arteries in his temples beating like two forge hammers, and it seemed to him that his breath issued from his breast with the roar of the wind issuing from a cavern. It seemed impossible to him that the horrible clamor of that irritated hinge should not have disturbed the entire household like the shock of an earthquake. The door, pushed by him, had taken the alarm and had shouted. The old man would rise at once. The two old women would shriek out. People would come to their assistance. In less than quarter of an hour, the town would be in an uproar and the gendarmerie on hand. For a moment, he thought himself lost. He remained where he was, petrified like the statue of salt, not daring to make a movement. Several minutes elapsed. The door had fallen wide open. He ventured to peep into the next room. Nothing had stirred there. He lent an ear. Nothing was moving in the house. The noise made by the rusty hinge had not awakened anyone. This first danger was past, but there still reigned a frightful tumult within him. Nevertheless, he did not retreat. Even when he had thought himself lost, he had not drawn back. His only thought now was to finish as soon as possible. He took a step and entered the room. This room was in a state of perfect calm. Here and there, vague and confused forms were distinguishable, which in the daylight were papers scattered on a table, open folios, volumes piled upon a stool, an armchair heaped with clothing, a prie-deux, and which at that hour were only shadowy corners and whitish spots. Jean Valjean advanced with precaution, taking care not to knock against the furniture. He could hear, at the extremity of the room, the even and tranquil breathing of the sleeping bishop. He suddenly came to a halt. He was near the bed. He had arrived there sooner than he had thought for. Nature sometimes mingles her effects with her spectacles, with her actions, with somber and intelligent appropriateness, as though she desired to make us reflect. For the last half hour, a large cloud had covered the heavens. At the moment when Jean Valjean paused in front of the bed, this cloud parted, as though on purpose, and a ray of light traversing the long window suddenly illuminated the bishop's pale face. He was sleeping peacefully. He lay in his bed almost completely dressed on account of the cold of the Basses Alps in a garment of brown wool which covered his arms to the wrists. His head was thrown back on the pillow in the careless attitude of repose, his hand adorned with a pastoral ring, and whence had fallen so many good deeds and so many holy actions was hanging over the edge of the bed. His whole face was illumined with a vague expression of satisfaction, of hope, and of felicity. It was more than a smile, and almost a radiance. He bore upon his brow the indescribable reflection of a light which was invisible. The soul of the just contemplates in sleep a mysterious heaven. A reflection of that heaven rested on the bishop. It was, at the same time, a luminous transparency, for that heaven was within him. That heaven was his conscience. At that moment, when the ray of moonlight superposed itself, so to speak, upon that inward radiance, the sleeping bishop seemed as in a glory. It remained, however, gentle and veiled in an ineffable half-light. 
That moon in the sky, that slumbering nature, that garden without a quiver, that house which was so calm, the hour, the moment, the silence, added some solemn and unspeakable quality to the venerable repose of this man, and enveloped in a sort of serene and majestic oriel that white hair, those closed eyes, that face in which all was hope and all was confidence, that head of an old man, and that slumber of an infant. There was something almost divine in this man, who was thus august without being himself aware of it. Jean Valjean was in the shadow and stood motionless with his iron candlestick in his hand, frightened by this luminous old man. Never had he beheld anything like this. This confidence terrified him. The moral world has no grander spectacle than this, a troubled and uneasy conscience which has arrived on the brink of an evil action contemplating the slumber of the just. That slumber and that isolation, and with a neighbor like himself, had about it something sublime of which he was vaguely but imperiously conscious. No one could have told what was passing within him, not even himself. In order to attempt to form an idea of it, it is necessary to think of the most violent of things in the presence of the most gentle. Even on his visage, it would have been impossible to distinguish anything with certainty. It was a sort of haggard astonishment. He gazed at it, and that was all. But what was his thought? It would have been impossible to divine it. What was evident was that he was touched and astounded, but what was the nature of this emotion? His eye never quitted the old man. The only thing which was clearly to be inferred from his attitude and his physiognomy was a strange indecision. One would have said that he was hesitating between the two abysses, the one in which one loses oneself and that in which one saves oneself. He seemed prepared to crush that skull or to kiss that hand. At the expiration of a few minutes, his left arm rose slowly towards his brow and he took off his cap. Then his arm fell back with the same deliberation, and Jean Valjean fell to meditating once more, his cap in his left hand, his club in his right hand, his hair bristling all over his savage head. The bishop continued to sleep in profound peace beneath that terrifying gaze. The gleam of the moon rendered confusedly visible the crucifix over the chimney-piece, which seemed to be extending its arms to both of them with a benediction for one and a pardon for the other. Suddenly, Jean Valjean replaced his cap on his brow, then stepped rapidly past the bed without glancing at the bishop straight to the cupboard which he saw near the head. He raised his iron candlestick as though to force the lock. The key was there. He opened it. The first thing which presented itself to him was the basket of silverware. He seized it, traversed the chamber with long strides without taking any precautions and without troubling himself about the noise, gained the door, re-entered the oratory, opened the window, seized his cudgel, bestrode the windowsill of the ground floor, put the silver into his knapsack, threw away the basket, crossed the garden, leaped over the wall like a tiger, and fled. And that will be all. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to like and subscribe or comment. In the meantime, I hope you have an excellent day. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.